Thank you for downloading this episode of Software Gone Wild, a podcast focused on everything software defined. To get more episodes and explore other SDN and network automation resources, visit sdn.ipspace.net. Welcome to another Nick-focused episode of Software Gone Wild. As always, I have Nick Boraglio and Chris Young with me to keep me honest, and Chris might or might not ask an SNMP-related question. And with us today is Silvano Gai, who is working for an interesting startup, and we'll get to that in a second. We already did two podcasts on different approaches to network interface cards. We had Luke Gorey, who claimed that a NIC should be as simple as possible. And that's understood because he is writing an open source virtual switch and he wants to be able to deal with the NIC in as simple as possible manner as there could be. And on the other hand, we had great guys from Mellanox and Broadcom, if I remember correctly, arguing that we should offload as much as possible into the NIC. Yet again, because they like working on NIC features. Going back to Luke's argument, we all know how long it took to properly implement IPv6 TCP offload in Linux kernel and all the great fun we had catching bugs around that particular feature. It was so bad at certain times that people just turned off IPv6 offload because then things started to work. Today we have Silvano Guy, an old networking engineer. Silvano, you're sort of officially retired, right? Yes, uh, I retired uh, probably around 2011. Then did a fun project with a friend of mine. I helped him build uh, an internet service provider in a rural area of the United States. And then uh, approximately around, I think, the end of 2016, some old friend called me and we're starting a new interesting uh, startup that you mentioned before that is called Pensando. And they asked me if I can help them define the architecture, which I did uh, on a part-time basis. So your perspective is, at least today, a perspective of yet another Nick vendor, right? Well, I don't know exactly if defining it a, a Nick vendor, but for sure the first incarnation of a Pensando product come in the form of a card that has a PCIe form factor and that has Ethernet port. So I think from that perspective, you can call it a Nick. Okay, so let's fix that blooper right now. You wouldn't call them a Nick vendor. What would you call them? Well, we like to call that domain-specific hardware. And I think uh, if you want to understand what domain-specific hardware is, I really recommend the NSC Patterson uh, lecture, Turing Award Lecture of NSC and Patterson. It's a fantastic piece uh, of learning that I recommend everybody. You know, and basically what NSC and Patterson say is um, processor have reached some sort of limitation, and we can discuss later what that limitation are. And there is space again for doing domain-specific hardware. The most successful domain-specific hardware is clearly in this moment not a NIC. It's clearly the GPUs. But we are starting to see the graphical processing unit. But we are starting to see domain-specific hardware in other fields, for example, for artificial intelligence or machine learning. 
And for the real old timers, they might remember the floating point coprocessors, right? Yeah, but you know, if you go back, you can go back to IBM mainframe. It had the IO channel processor, you know, and the CPU was doing the CPU and the channel processor was doing the IO. And then we had the network processing units, the MPUs, right? Affirmative. But you see, what basically killed all that was the fantastic growth that we had in general purpose processor. Basically starting, I don't know, in the 1970 and basically going up to 2010. That was a pure linear growth. It was fantastic, you know. The performance was increasing and increasing and increasing. There is this law that is called the Moore law that basically said, that says in this 1965 formulation that the number of transistors doubled every two years. And this was an empirical law, but was tracking so well. And so, you know, general purpose processor can be programmed in either the language. You can pick the language that you like. You can pick the operating system that you like. The advantage were so much that general purpose processor in that period of time killed any other effort to do dedicated hardware. Then, you know, in 2010, general purpose processor 2008 started to slow down. And then the possibility of building domain-specific hardware started to get interesting again. Okay, and before we go there, as you started the whole history with IBM and uh, I.O. processors, obviously you've been in this industry for a long, long time. So for people who are not that familiar with your work, what were you doing in the last 50 years? Well, I basically graduated from Politecnico di Torino. I was professor of computer engineering at Politecnico di Torino. Till 97, in 97, I moved to the United States, where I worked three years for Cisco System. Very interesting work on the Catalyst 5000, 5500, 6000, 6500. And then I did the first startup that was called Andiamo that brought to Cisco the MDS product line, the fiber channel switching. And then I did Nuova, which was a very interesting startup in which we did basically data center switching and especially we did the UCS, the Unified Computing System for Cisco, which was, for me, a fantastic experience, very, very interesting experience. Then for family reason, you know, all parents in Italy, I decided to take a break, as I was telling before, just working part-time, helping with friends setting up this ISP in the Sierra Nevada. And then in 2016, I went back to do this work for Pensando. Okay, so I know that Pensando is still sort of mysterious about what they do. Is there something you can tell us about what they're doing? Well, it's not really so mysterious. We have announced Pensando has announced publicly what he is doing, I think, in October of last year. It has announced that it has an ASIC which is an application-specific integrated circuit, which is based on the P4 architecture. If you go, P4 is a standard that is basically an evolution. Uh, you can call it an evolution of open flow. The suspects are always the same people who started at Stanford by Nick McEwen and by other. But probably the most famous P4 company was Barefoot that was acquired by Intel. Barefoot did a P4 switch. Pensando doesn't do a P4 switch. Pensando used P4 technology as a way to process packet. 
And so it basically Pensando is public domain. It has an ASIC that has a P4 architecture. You can go on the P4.org website. There is a blog there and there is a post that describes the architecture of the ASIC. So that has been made uh, public, not in great detail, but in some level of detail is public. This ASIC is basically capable of processing packets very efficiently. And the strength of P4, P4 is basically a pattern matching action. You match a series of patterns that are basically the definition of a packet. And then according to the match that you get, you take some action. And we can get into detail of the kind of action that can be taken. So effectively, the ASIC that Pensanto has is a packet processing ASIC. Yeah, you can say that. And, you know, I mean, there, is, there are diagrams on the P4.org website that shows that it has, of course, a PCI interface. It has Ethernet interface at 100 gig. Pensando call it a domain-specific processor. And the kind of processing that it can do, of course, are all the classical processing of uh, networking. You know, for example, it can act as an IP router or it can add or remove all possible type of encapsulation. And, you know, this encapsulation that I personally think are not particularly brilliant from a networking perspective, but are very useful today for all the cloud provider, everybody that want to build overlay network. And there are tons of variation that people have deployed. And being flexible with before in doing this uh, pattern matching, you can deal with a lot of different encapsulation. And then, of course, there are uh, tunnels that are in clear and tunnels that are encrypted, and there is an encryption capability that ASIC has. That ASIC has also has the capability of maintaining huge table. It has really a great, great amount of scale. It has a huge amount of memory. We are talking gigabytes of memory, so it can keep huge table that can be used for flows or for routing tables or for routing table combined with VRF, etc. It can basically provide the basic infrastructure that is required by, for example, a cloud provider or a large data center to implement a cloud being either public or private. Not a cloud, the networking part of the world, the I.O. part of the cloud. And you're saying that doing packet processor in a domain-specific hardware is, let's say, more optimized, be it power-wise or cost-wise or whatever other metric, than doing the same thing on the CPU? Well, there are two aspects. One aspect that I don't want to lose. One aspect is exactly the aspect that you are saying. The other aspect is also an aspect of functional organization. And we will discuss that. But let's concentrate on the aspect that you are saying right now. Power, you know, power is a big deal. In data center, power is really the big deal. And uh, when you are in a server and you are trying to fit into a PCI slot, you know, your budget is around 25 watts. 25 watts is not much for a processor. You probably know better than me how many core it takes to process an 100 gigabit flow and to do something meaningful in terms of routing or uh, encryption termination or tunnel termination at 100 gigabit. 
doing that kind of operation, or firewalling, for example, or load balancing, doing that kind of operation at 100 gig in 25 watt is extremely, extremely challenging for the processor. It requires many, many core, and the power consumption is much higher. But also the cost of this core becomes significant because the core also, of course, come with all the motherboard and the associated RAM and the associated infrastructure. So, yes, I claim that for a specific function, we are talking of domain-specific, so specific is the keyword. For specific function, you can implement an ASIC with a P4 architecture that is much more power-efficient and much less cost than doing the same function on general purpose core. And for the enterprise markets, let's not forget that VMware is charging vSphere tax for every core, even if you're using it for packet processing. Yeah, exactly. We all look at this cost of hardware as being outrageously expensive. But then when you look at the cost of some of the software, some of the software are really very expensive. Yeah, well, we will not even mention a certain six-letter database company. <laughs> Let's move on. Before we go to your other aspect, there were NPUs around for a long, long time. For example, EasyChip comes to mind. How is this thing different from, let's say, previous generation MPU? Well, previous generation MPU, at the end of the day, were still modeled and based on processor. They didn't really have this concept that before as of a pattern matching and of the action. So yes, they were processor, but were cut out and designed to be more efficient uh, to process packet compared to uh, general purpose processor. But they really didn't uh, excel so much. The architecture was still the architecture of a general purpose processor at the end of the day. And the kind of speed that we were able to achieve was not so high. Here we are talking with P4, you know, we are talking at least in the current technology of processing 100 gigabit per second, moving to 200 and 400 gigabit per second, and processing today probably 30 million packets per second, moving to 60 or 100 million packets per second. As the technology evolves, you know, current ASIC are probably in the 16 nanometer technology, moving to ASIC that are in the 7 nanometer technology you get approximately the double performance for the same power or half the power for the same performance. Now, just to complete the exploration of the solution space, you know, in the wonderful IETF term that brought us MPLS over UDP, for example, there is also the approach of using a standard NIC and putting an FPGA between the NIC and the transceiver and doing some additional functionality on FPGA. How does that compare to a dedicated ASIC? Absolutely. And that, I think, as many of your questions, is a super valid question. FPGA are more power angry than ASIC. There are different studies that you can read in literature and you can do your own measurement. But typically, for the same amount of function, it's not difficult to think that an FPGA consumes four times more power. And the reason you consume four times more power is that an FPGA to implement a function 
need more gates for the same function because that function is not precast, can be programmed dynamically. So there is that aspect of power. And, you know, FPGA are also pretty expensive. Now we are basically seeing on the market FPGA that have what we call an R periphery and a soft core. That helps a bit. The R periphery, you get all your macro, like a PCIe interface, the Ethernet interface, and that are hardwired. You cannot basically change them. The memory interface, like DDR4, etc. And then you have just the soft core into which you can put your logic. But what very often people don't understand is that, yes, FPGA are programmable, but they are not programmable in C. Even if there are systems that allow you to program FPGA in C or in Java or whatever, or in Python, FPGA are basically programmable in Inverilog. And when you program in Verilog, you basically design hardware. Verilog is the same, or VSDL, which is another alternative, are the same hardware description language that you use to design ASIC. And the issue with this language is they are not so easy to be used by software engineers. Software engineers function and think in terms of subroutine, of processes, of thread, of software concept. Instead, when you program in Verilog or in VSDL, you basically need to think functional block. Let's suppose that you have built two fantastic Verilog programs. One does RDMA and the other one does, I don't know, IP routing. And you want to merge them and run them on the same FPGA. It's not like just calling two routine in C. You need to take the two parser and merge the two parser. You need to take the memory access and merge the memory access. You need to take the CPU channel and merge the CPU channel. They are hardware structure. They are not software programs. And if I understood correctly, you're sort of implying that the beauty of this particular ASIC is that it uses P4, so the programming interface is closer to the hearts of the software developers. Yes, and don't take me wrong. P4 still requires hardware understanding. It's not a pure software uh, approach, but it's as a software approach as it can be when you program hardware. And also it's a completely open, completely standardized. It has a community, which is an, an alive community. By the way, the P4 community has now decided that it's going to standardize not only P4 for switches, but also P4 for NIC, for network interface card. So there is that activity going on in the community. And so there is, uh, when a community for you have expertise that is forming around that community. People start to understand the technology. People that start to be able to deal with that technology. And so there is an ecosystem that is starting to create around this P4 standard. And now let's move on. Now that we covered all the possible technologies, we have this very smart packet processing ASIC in a form factor that you can put into a server. Why would you want to do that, and what would be the use cases? Well, that is what I was mentioning before in terms of functional difference. Let's uh, consider a cloud provider. Cloud provider today 
they are all racing against each other. And they want basically to offer three things. They want to offer virtual machine, which is their classical offering. They want to offer bare metal server, because there is still a lot of interesting things for bare metal server. Let's not forget that we talk about virtual machine and we talk about container, which is the first thing that we want to offer. But when you go in private cloud, 60% of the server are still bare metal server, are still server that run a Linux OS or a Windows OS. And when you want to offer such a differentiation, virtual machine, bare metal server, and container, then, you know, it's difficult to build a solution that is in the virtual machine space or in the container space or in the bare metal space and work for everyone. It's much easier to build a solution that sits underneath, that sits underneath of all of that, that doesn't depend on the operating system, that doesn't depend on the hypervisor, but is able to support the operating system or to support the hypervisor. I don't know if that is what you meant. Yeah, so let's be a little bit more specific because you were a little bit vague. There are two approaches to virtual networking today. One of them is, let's call it the NSX approach, where it's all software-based, and then you have the problem when you have the bare metal server. You can put the virtual switch on the bare metal server, but someone becomes root on the bare metal server, and they own your virtual network. Not a good idea. And the other option we have today is the Cisco ACI option, where everything is on the top of rack switches, and then you're limited by the TCAM size because you're trying to do terabits of switching at a reasonable cost, and so you have small tables. So you can't do firewalling, for example. Not a good idea. And what you're saying is that you are sitting somewhere in the middle, right? Yes, and at the end of the day, you can sit directly on the server, or you can even think to be a bump in the wire if you want. But let's consider to sit directly on the server. If you sit directly on the server, then, you know, you can support standard like uh, SRIOV or you can support multiple VLAN. So basically on your adapter or your domain specific piece of hardware, you can present multiple interface to the server, standard PCIe interface, standard Ethernet interface. And then, you know, you can provide services to that interface. You can firewall them. You can create tunnel for them. You can encrypt the tunnel that you create. And then there is also all the big aspect of storage that you can support. Storage we know is moving from uh, the classical SCSI to NVMe, and in particular to NVMe over fabric. And NVMe over fabric has two big incarnations. It has NVMe over RDMA and NVMe over TCP. If you are able to terminate your RDMA or your TCP in that domain-specific piece of hardware that you have there, then you can present to the operating system a standard NVMe interface, and the operating system will even not know that that NVMe device is not local to that particular server. So doing things underneath with a huge amount of memory, that is important because, as you were saying, There is need for memory space to be able to support a large number of rules in firewalling. You also need to support stateful firewalling and potentially stateful load balancer. If you are able to do all that underneath, then you provide services 
to the VM, services to the container, or services to the VRMIT. I'm just trying to get a mental model here. Is this similar to the AWS Nitro Anaperma card yes. approach? Okay. Yes. I think there is a, probably a slide. There are differences between the two approaches. But in the case of, I think, AWS, for what I understand about AWS Anapurna approach, is a very, very tight integration, even with the particular hypervisor, even with the motherboard. There are multiple chips that are organized on the motherboard for different functions, etc. It's clearly a much more closed system, and, and it's perfectly understandable since that is a leading solution, you know, that uh, designed to support the leader of cloud provider. Here we are, of course, not in any exclusive agreement with any cloud provider. So our solution is a bit more general and generic. It's not so tightly integrated with any particular hypervisor or with any particular management system. It is a more, you know, open solution that is designed to be sold to multiple different customers. So you've touched on a handful of the things that I, you know, have always been the highly desirable features that come with specialty hardware, whether it be an FPGA or what have you, um, P4 being the, you know, the current P4 supported NPUs being the current hotness, I guess. And that's that you can do these things. You can do complicated things to packet streams at essentially line rate with very little overhead because it's all done in hardware. And I think maybe to equate that a little bit with what listeners might be familiar with, then I'm going to go back a little ways. And you can correct me if I'm, if I'm off base here, but in the past, you know, say around 2004, 2005, 10 gigabit Ethernet became available. Security appliances were, as they always are, significantly lagged behind the packet processing devices. So you could get a router that had 10 gig interface in it, but you couldn't actually use it for anything that wasn't internal, right? So if I had a, you know, an OC192 that I'm handing off to something that has a 10 gig inside the network, I can't firewall that at line rate at that time, right? So along comes someone with uh, an FPGA based appliance. I'm digging from my own history here. You know, this product was actually purchased by Force 10, but I had a, one of these early on. We could put that in place and it was able to operate at line rate years before you could actually buy, let's say, you know, random vendor firewall, like normal, what an enterprise would buy now. So I think that it would be, you know, to sort of normalize that with something that, you know, the listeners might be familiar with. If you have a fast internal core system, like a cloud service provider is a great example, or perhaps a very, very large carrier, they may want to do filtering inside their network at core links at line rate. They're not going to be able to buy something like that off the shelf from a normal vendor, but they could potentially do something like that with a programmable interface like this. I think we need to here clarify a bit a terminology that has been becoming of common use, that is the north-south versus the east-west. 
The north-south is what normally referred to the internet traffic, to all the traffic that enter and exit your data center or your cloud from the outside. The east-west traffic is basically the traffic that is internal to your data center or internal to your cloud. There are studies even from Cisco system, public study even from Cisco system that says that 85% of the traffic now is east-west. I used to say that to customer and customers start to laugh at me saying 85% is a big underestimation. In our data center, 95% or more of the traffic is east-west and just a minority of the traffic is north-south. The north-south traffic is today, I think, well protected. I don't know if well protected, but protected as good as it can be protected by classical firewall in form of boxes, appliances, etc. When you want to start to introduce protection for the east-west traffic, the appliance model is not really going to scale. The appliance model has a lot of issues. First of all, you know, when you multiply by 100 approximately the amount of traffic, you know, this appliance becomes an enormous choke point. But also, we have built this fantastic loss network, you know. We have a preacher that we both like, I think, even that is Dinesh Duck, that has taught us everything about closed network and how to optimize them at best, how to use everything. And now we put appliances on this closed network and we start to do only traffic trombone and we destroy all the beauty that we have created in closed network to do traffic trombone. Instead, if you put something at the periphery, at the edge of your network, in the form of domain-specific, then you have two hopes. You have the hope to not destroy what you have done at the network level and maintain optimal routing, optimal forwarding, etc. And you have the hope to scale because you have multiple of these devices and each device does need to handle only the traffic on one server and uh, is not like an appliance that is uh, shared by hundreds of servers. When you share a, an appliance between 100 of servers, if a server starts start even only to push 10 gigabit per second, that appliance is going to die. So I think there are two aspects. One aspect is bring the network to be the network and act as a network for what it's capable of doing, forwarding path through the shortest path. The second aspect is put the intelligence at the edge and by distributing that intelligence at the edge ubiquitously, make it a scale. I agree with that. And I think that that solves two particular problems. The first being, you know, the way I was always taught is you filter closest to the edge. You filter closest, to, uh, you filter at the closest point to the resource you're trying to protect, right? And this lets you do that because you're, you're filtering essentially at the edge. It also solves the problem of complicated, like you said, traffic tromboning, when you're doing things like east-west filtering with multi-tenancy and the like that, you know, the large providers are going to do. So I, I agree. It, it solves a, a number of different problems that have historically been either sort of whitewashed or just too difficult or expensive to deal with. Yeah, I must also admit that when we started, we designed it into this setting, this is an incredible feature. You know, for example, Visasic is capable of doing TLS termination, which is not easy. And other, many other features is super interesting. 
Now that we are starting to deploy it on the field, the feature the customer asks are very, very basic features because there are many of these problems, very basic problems that are completely unsolved. One of the biggest problems, you know, for example, is telemetry, being really able to understand and measure what is happening on the network, what is happening for the application. Another incredibly interesting problem is bidirectional ER span to avoid to build a separate tap network. Basic firewalling is very, very important. Even not in, not in an enforcing mode for at the beginning, but just in a monitoring mode for understanding what is going on on the east-west direction, because some of these customers don't know exactly what is going on on the east-west direction, because this application have grown in a bit chaotic fashion and is not completely clear who talk with who. And then, of course, you know, the next step is to enforce the firewall. Being capable, for example, of doing a minimum of application ID, NDPI, that kind of stuff. That are the feature that are really the low-hanging fruit that the customer want to push to the edge. But at least in my understanding, the customer wants to push to the edge. So are you, from an east-west standpoint, are you now starting from a mental model being looking at traffic internal to a server as that's a separate east-west domain as well? Is that fair to say? If you mean internal to a server, for example, between different virtual machines or different containers, yes. Yeah, okay. And from a telemetry standpoint, are you using the barefoot INT P4 telemetry? Is that the standard format or is this, are you doing something different for telemetry? Again, telemetry, we need to understand what telemetry means. Yes. <laughs> the beginning mentioned SNMP, you know, which, uh, you know, <laughs> I used to mention also a lot, you know, SNMP. In SNMP, what do you have? You can do telemetry with SNMP, but you have basically poor or pool model in which you go there and you read a bunch of counter and, you know, all that is done by a CPU. And if you try to read too many counter, you overload the CPU and everything dies in the measurement that you get are incorrect and whatever. So to me, the real difference between the old SNMP way of monitoring thing and telemetry is telemetry needs to be designed in the data path. Telemetry needs to be sort of some form of streaming set of data that get out of a chip or they get out of a car of this domain specific. And, but, it needs to involve only the data path. If you involve the control path or the management path... Bad things happen. Bad things happen. Yeah. If you really want to measure accurately, you need to build your measurement in the data path. That, to me, is the basic of telemetry. And, uh, you know, there are now interesting ways you can look at... Uh, at public work done at Stanford University, for example, to synchronize clock with the high accuracy without using PTP. We are looking at easily to synchronize clock with like 500 nanoseconds or, or uh, even less precision. Then, you know, when you get to that level of clock synchronization and you have streaming telemetry in the data path, you can always, for the first time in history, be able to accurate measure unidirectional delay. You will be able to start to learn a lot of stuff that you weren't able to learn before, or that before were done only in very specific 
environment. For example, you know, the high frequency trading environment, they have always been very peculiar and very picky about that. And they have built dedicated hardware infrastructure that didn't scale or weren't built outside that environment just to measure things very, very accurately. But now we are at the point in the technology curve in which we can do that systematically. And when we start to do that systematically, we can provide really very valuable information to the end user. One question that we haven't really dealt with yet is, is we're talking about programming these NICs. I'm just going to call them a NIC. But who is doing that programming? Is there, in the ar- within the architecture, it, it seems if we're doing clock synchronization between multiple systems, we would want to probably have policy consolidation at some central point. What does the management architecture look here look like here from a telemetry standpoint? Is there a consumer of that telemetry if I'm streaming? Where does Pensando live in, in kind of that management framework? Well, Pensando has uh, basically two, separate, two offerings. And the two offerings are not different from an hardware perspective. They are a bit different from the dimension of a customer. When you take a customer, let's take a tier two cloud provider. That tier two cloud provider has already typically a policy infrastructure in place. It has already invested a lot of money in a big management infrastructure, in a big policy infrastructure. So they just want to send to the card the final rule. They want themselves to do the programming of the card. And uh, it's a more high-touch approach, but uh, it's an approach that works in their environment because the investment in the generic, in the software infrastructure, in the management infrastructure has been huge. And that's perfectly fine. When you look at an enterprise, Clearly, the approach is completely different. The enterprise want a complete solution. So yes, Pensando offer a policy manager, a piece of software that is called Venice, which is basically an intent-based policy manager that is capable of controlling multiple cards and distribute policy to this card. For telemetry, in reality, it makes sense to partner. There are many telemetry collection solution out there on the market. And I don't think Pensando is in particularly desire to write a, a telemetry collector. It will probably partner with some of the major players there to collect. And the space, collecting is not the real big deal. It's to analyze this telemetry information. So you said, of course, all the buzzwords right now, intent-based, like that one, it makes me roll my eyes, I'll be honest. <laughs> um, so from a Venice standpoint, what does that intent framework look like? Is it- Intent-based to me, it also makes roll my eye. But, you know, intent-based is very simple to me. You program some policy when the car connect or disconnect and, you know, or you add the new card or you move things around or whatever. At the first uh, possible moment, the card will download, will connect to the policy manager and download the set of policy that are appropriate for that card is intent-based in the sense that is not transactional, in the sense that not all the cards need to be responding at that moment for a policy to be changed. You know, it is changed at the first moment that uh, it is possible to change that policy. I don't know if that is what you meant. Yeah, I'm, I'm so used to the marketing answer and having someone technical answer it is a whole different thing, so... 
just that's great. I'm trying to think of like how would I use this in a data center if I've got policy in specifically in the enterprise again from a cloud uh, from a tier two cloud provider. I would agree with you. They have the software chops. They have the ability to kind of bring all this stuff together. But if I'm in an enterprise standpoint, I'm going to have policy defined and pushed towards my switches, network devices. I'm going to have policy pushed, hopefully more granular policy pushed to Pensando Nix because enterprises do what they do. They're probably going to be running an overlay solution on top of this as well. So whether they're running Nuage or, or NSX. And I know we don't have a lot of experience here yet, but how do you see those different policies and where you would push that policy instantiated in networks? How are we going to do that? What are your thoughts there? Well, you know, the policy concept as the classical concept of uh, application ID, groups, user ID, and that kind of classical concept. And you write the policy using that high-level concept. Then it is basically the policy manager that translates that high-level concept in uh, filters that are basically in ACL at the end of the day, stateful ACL, that are sent to the car to be implemented. If we are talking, for example, about fire, there are other policies you were mentioning, which are extremely important now, that is all the tunnel creation. And in the tunnel creation, being it VXLAN, Geneva, or, or whatever is your favorite uh, style of tunnel, of course, you create this tunnel to create an overlay network typically on a closed network. And again, that can be expressed in terms of policy and pushed down to this card. Then there is also the issue that sometimes, initially, for the moment, we see for external traffic or traffic that goes through non-secure link, you want to encrypt this traffic. And you can use a, either a stateless solution like IPsec, in which basically, you know, you encrypt packet by packet, or it's alternative that is DTLS, in which again, you encrypt packet by packet, or you can even go to a stateful solution like TLS, in which you basically create a sort of uh, VPN over TCP in which you encrypt your traffic. And then, you know, as I were mentioned before, you can send policy to monitor traffic. You can send, for example, a policy that says if uh, any flows at a given point increases bandwidth uh, more than uh, 30% in, uh, in this period of time, start to send out uh, a copy of that flow on a near span session. And that is very useful because it may allow you to send out copy of a packet when you suspect that there is an anomaly. So all that kind of policy can be written, can be expressed in high-level concept, and then it's up to the policy manager basically to translate this high-level concept down to the car. And the communication, there is really nothing new to invent under the sun here. All the communication happens only in two ways is either REST API or gRPC. I mean, the communication of a policy. Non, the tunnel and the rest are created according to other standards. But all yeah. the communication of the policy is encrypted, either is, is encoded. So let me restart this sentence. All the communication of the policy is encoded, either as REST API or as gRPC. So effectively, you have an API to program the cards. On the other hand, people are using all sorts of cloud orchestration systems, be it 
OpenStack or CloudStack or vRealize or something else, and then you have something like NSX underneath it or not. And you are effectively replacing some of the components that are present in uh, this software stacks. So how would the integration look like? Would I have to write my own glue or is Pensando, for example, providing an ML2 driver for OpenStack? Let me, before answering this question, make a clarification because the question made me realize I didn't explain correctly one thing. There are two levels of REST API or gRPC. The card itself has a REST API and a gRPC. The kind of communication that happen on that REST API and gRPC of the card is basically a communication that is associated with the policy of the card. It's very specific to the policy that you want to enforce on that particular card. At that level, you will see things like IP addresses, port number, VTAP for tunnel termination, VLAN ID, and that kind of construct. Then there is a REST API or ZRPC that is exported by the policy manager. At that level, you will see much higher level concepts, like the concept of an app ID, of a user ID, of a policy group, or so on, that basically allow you to express policy that are network-wide and not specific to any particular device. It is the task of the policy manager to translate this high-level policy into low-level policy more specific to each individual card and also to identify the subset of policy that are relevant for that particular card. But still, I need to integrate somehow the policy manager with my overall orchestration system because people are honestly more interested in spinning up VMs and connecting them together than thinking about networking policies and encapsulations. So where's the glue? That is what I was trying to say. You can glue at two levels. For example, we have an enterprise customer that has already built himself a sort of high-level policy manager that is capable of pushing policies toward a bunch of classical uh, security appliance uh, a la Palo Alto or F5 or, or similar, which has basically added a sort of driver to push policy, to push high-level policy to our Venice. And then Venice will redistribute the low-level policy to our cards on the server. Or in the case of cloud provider, cloud provider don't care about this high-level integration. They immediately send the final policies to the card. In a case like OpenStack, you can do the integration in both ways. Probably in the case of OpenStack, it makes more sense to integrate directly into the card. So it makes more sense to basically build a module for OpenStack that control directly each individual card, since OpenStack is already a policy system in itself. Okay, now it makes perfect sense. Thank you. I'm going to do what I hate, but it's more of a comment than a question. 
And I'm coming back to an earlier comment on programming FPGAs versus how we can program Pensando now. I love the fact that it's becoming easier, that you can use high-level languages, that you can think in software, subroutines. All of that is great, but it also scares me that we're exposing that level of control through a REST interface. What are we doing to protect it from the coding person? And that's, I'm using that, that coder very, very loosely that has, you know, my 14 year old learned to do some REST calls over the weekend. Chris, it's like C. It gives you all the rope you need to hang yourself. So from a technical perspective, we have uh, put a lot of effort in making this chip secure. The chip is designed to be FIPS 140 certified. The chip has what is called a PATH inside. PATH is a physical unclonable unit. There are different types of PATH in literature, but the most common type of PATH basically observes the initial state of all the memory circuit in the chip at power up, and they build a, a copy of the private key and the public key from that uh, initial state. And there is some very interesting physics behind the fact that by no means I claim to understand, but the interesting part is that every time that the chip powers up, it creates the same private key and public key without needing to store them, which is very, very interesting. And then using that key, basically the chip creates a secure connection with the policy manager. The chip needs to be programmed to talk with a particular policy manager. At that point, it brings up a TLS 1.3 session. Everything is encrypted with the latest and greatest uh, TLS. And so all the communication, all the management communication are absolutely encrypted. The chip is sort of adopted by the policy manager when this TLS communication is established. The policy manager becomes the entity that controls that uh, particular chip. You cannot uh, try to establish another communication. It is the chip that communicates with the policy, establishes the communication with the policy manager and not vice versa. So it's not possible to establish another level of communication. So there are a lot of stuff that people that understand security much, much better than me because I don't claim to understand security have worked on to make that as secure as possible. The purpose of, of the REST API and the gRPC is really to pass policy is not to program the device. You can still program the device, but if you want to program the device, you basically will need to build your own image, which is securely boot by the chip when the card is powered on. You can do that, but then, of course, as Ivan was saying, that there you have all the rope that you want to hang yourself. We can only guarantee some security on the image we built. If you build another image for that chip and you decide to install that other image and you decide to securely boot that other image and that other image contain something that is unsecure, then you have an unsecure chip. So I guess I'm going to do the same thing, Chris, to make a comment. It sounds like, like many of the programmable pipeline uh, P4-based devices you're providing the pipelines. If someone needs a custom pipeline, you can build that for them. But what you're exposing is an API to manipulate an existing pipeline. So if I wanted something that was basically not IP, like some research protocol, Indian or something like that, 
I can't just go and push that code into the P4. I guess I could if I understood the, you know, if I had the SDK and all those things. But normal users aren't going to be writing their own pipelines. Is that correct? That is absolutely affirmative. Normal users are not going to build their own pipeline, are going to program a pipeline that we provide. We also provide an SDK. And with the SDK, as you were said, you can build your own pipeline. You can build your own protocol and you can do research and or build that particular encapsulation that nobody else has or build, you know, a bunch of different stuff, a bunch of different applications. We have people that are starting to look uh, at using this device for applications that we have never even thought at the beginning. But then, you know, the SDK doesn't work through the REST API. The SDK, the purpose of the SDK is to build a new image for the car. When you build a new image, that image will contain what you have programmed. If what you have programmed is good, it's good. If what you have programmed is bad, it's bad. Right. So I think that's an important distinction that is sort of not always understood by folks that haven't messed, had any hands-on time with P4, is that typically you're not, like as a user, you're not building your own pipelines. As a researcher, you're probably going to want to build your own pipelines, but most customers of a you know particular p4 based uh, product are going to use you know vendor provided pipelines and so that the programming that happens is usually whatever the vendor has exposed to them as opposed to having to actually sit down and program in p4 absolutely you're absolutely correct and you know this pipeline over time as anything else will have more feature you know for example, I don't know, today I don't think we ship Geneva, tomorrow we may ship Geneva encapsulation. You know, today we only ship IPsec, tomorrow you will have also the TLS or TLS. Sure, this pipeline will gain feature over time, and with the feature, there will be the corresponding API to program the parameter of that features. You know, if tomorrow we implement a load balancer, we will give you an API, REST API or gRPC, to program that load balancer, okay? But up to the point that the load balancer is not in our main pipeline, if you want to use it, you can take the development kit and write it yourself, but then it is what you write. Right, and I think that, you know, to equate that to normal, you know, traditional networking, just to sort of come full circle and wrap up my comment, it's the process of, say, upgrading a, like a chassis switch, or, you know, chassis-based L3 switch where it pushes code into the line cards and it's programming whatever the ASIC is. It could be an FPGA, it could be whatever. And it's a similar process to that. So when you add those features, like you said, you add gRPC or whatever, you're going to do an upgrade. It's going to push that code down into the NPU and then you've got your upgrade done and then you have that feature. So it's really analogous to some of the things that we have now. I think that the huge differentiator is that there's so much more that you can manipulate with something like this as opposed to, say, a traditional piece of network equipment. And with that, I will cease talking. Let me just explain that a bit better. Now, the card is a root of trust. The image that came on the card is signed according to that root of trust. There is a complete secure boot process in place. The card generates its private and public key. It connects with the policy manager. 
the policy manager at that point can send down another image. Okay, if you want to upgrade that particular card, exactly as you were saying before, you can send down another image that again is signed and uh, can be securely booted by the card and can replace the basic image on the card. We will also give a capability to customers through the development kit to develop their own image and to sign their own image so that that image can be securely booted on the card. Of course, at that point, the functionality of the card is what the customer has written is not what we have written. Okay, so let's wrap it up right there. If people want to know more about this exciting new bit of hardware, Silvana, where can they reach you? They can reach me at SGAI, like Sierra Golf Alpha India, at pensando.io. Perfect. And you have a blog with a number of blog posts already there that go into more details of what we've been discussing. And I'll include that in the blog post announcing the podcast when it's published so that people can go and do some background research if they feel like that. Yeah, I recommend everybody. It's very easy. Go on the p4.org website and search for Pensando, find the blog post. That blog post basically explains most of the concepts that I have explained during this podcast, and it's very easy to find. And it's public domain. So, And uh, Nick and Chris, where can people find you guys? So controlissues.net is my blog, at NetmanChris on Twitter. And um, I just want to say thank you very much. I'm really looking forward to seeing what Pensando does in the next year. It's a new way. Thank you. I appreciate it. Uh, and Nick? I'm... Uh forwarding plane on twitter and uh forwardingplane.net is uh, my blog uh neither of you blog at the moment i guess because you're busy homeschooling your kids right yes yes and i'm ivan pipelniak and my kids are fortunately a little bit older so they homeschool themselves and you can find me at ipspace.net and all the various subdomains covering blog, content management system, this podcast, and so on. Thanks for being with us, and we'll be back. Thank you for listening to this episode of Software Gone Wild. If you want to learn more about software-defined networking, network automation, and related topics, visit sdn.ipspace.net and explore our courses, books, webinars, and podcasts.